Amen. First Kings chapter 18, starting at verse 20, says, So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, two oxen, and let them choose one for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress, which is a word for chop it in pieces as well, the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, choose you one bullock for yourselves, dress it or prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your gods, but don't put any fire underneath that sacrifice. And they took the bullock which was given them and they dressed it and they called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leapt upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. Wasn't a very politically correct prophet. And said, cry aloud, for he is a God, little g. Either he is talking or he is pursuing or he's away on a journey. Maybe he's having a nap and you need to wake him up. And they cried aloud, cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets until the blood gushed out upon them. Let me pause there and say, sincerity is not enough. If you're sincere enough in your worship, they didn't just break the skin. They cut themselves in a fashion that says the blood gushed out. And it came to pass, verse 29, when midday was passed and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. So that's, I believe we understand that to be about 3 p.m., I think, that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. So for hours, these hundreds of prophets of Baal had done everything they could to get their idols' attention, and yet there was silence in verse 30 it says and elijah said unto all the people come near unto me and all the people came near unto him and he repaired the altar of the lord that was broken down and elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of jacob under whom the word of the lord came saying israel shall be thy name and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put wood in order. He cut the bullock into pieces and he laid it on the wood and he said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So all up we have 12 barrels of water. And the water ran around about the altar and filled the trench also with water it was well and truly saturated it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that elijah the prophet came near and said lord god of abraham isaac and of israel 
Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Amen. Thank you for your patience. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a message about being doorkeepers. And during that message, we spoke about the church of Laodicea that was written about in Revelation chapter 3. And how God described them as being neither hot nor cold, but being lukewarm, just in between. Scripture let us know very clearly that their condition, that lukewarmness was offensive enough to God that he speaks of spewing them out of his mouth. It's a very graphic image. And here in 1 Kings chapter 18, we find Israel in a similar lukewarm state. They are attempting to combine their historical identity as the people of God, but also practicing the idol worshipping of the neighboring nations around about them. When you look into the worship of Baal and what was involved, there seems to be a general consensus that part of worshipping Baal involved immoral sexual practices as part of pleasing their false gods. So it's hardly a surprise that it appealed to the carnal nature of mankind. But that wickedness that was in the land of Israel flowed from the palace of Ahab all the way down to the people. And as a consequence of that, there was a drought in the land. Drought brought famine and hardship upon the people. And the prophet Elijah confronts the wicked king Ahab and the showdown that we just read through on Mount Carmel takes place. And the compromised nature of Israel's heart is revealed In the challenge that Elijah lays down, he says, how long will you halt or will you vacillate? Will you go backwards and forwards? Will you stumble between two opinions? How long will you go back and forth between God and Baal? How long will you keep a foot in each camp, as it were, trying to sit on the fence? He said, if the Lord is God, then serve him. But if he's not, then serve Baal. And we read at the end of our text of the indisputable proof that there is only one true and living God as he answered Elijah's prayer with fire from heaven. And the people began to cry out, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Amen. And we've preached this passage many, many times. And you would think that after such a clear and powerful demonstration of both the awesome power of God and the total absence of power of Baal, that this would be the last time that the people of Israel would be conflicted with idol worship. But tragically, it was not. They perverted their hearts and got involved in idolatry time and time again. 
And this morning, for the next little while, with the help of the Lord, I'm going to be preaching about the power of a made-up mind. The power of a made-up mind. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're thankful for your presence and your anointing that is here. God, I pray that you would anoint this vessel, that you would speak your words, Lord, that you would reach our hearts, God, that we would respond to you, Lord, as you desire. Today we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This is when it's good to have an iPad because you've got a light source. You can read your notes. Amen. In his omniscience, which is a big word which simply means that God knows everything, God in his creation design made the earth and all the creatures in it to declare his glory. In the pinnacle of his creation, in the creature that alone would bear his image, he added a unique ingredient that is only found in them, and that is the power of choice. All throughout history, God has called man to live a certain way, instituting laws and principles, warning of consequences for their wrong actions, urging them not to go down particular pathways. In through all of that, he has shown his grace and his mercy. He has drawn mankind to himself by his spirit, through his word, through the conscience that he put in humanity, even through the majesty of creation itself. But he has always stopped short of forcing man to do his will. He's tried to give mankind every opportunity to do the right thing, but never actually making the choice for him. That's kind of what a parent's role is when you think about it. Parents' responsibility is as their children grow is to provide an opportunity and environment for their children to make good choices as they get older, recognizing that the day will come when choose, they will. Amen. And like... A rebellious child, Israel wavered between serving God, which they knew was right, and serving Baal, which they knew was wrong. That indecision, and they're often outright wrong decisions, brought heartache and suffering and judgment into their nation, into their homes, and into their families. And like Elijah so many years ago, the challenge that God would have me to bring to us this morning is, please, don't halt between two opinions. Don't be stuck in the middle between serving God and serving yourself. Don't have a foot in the kingdom of God and a foot in the world. Don't be deceived into thinking that a little idolatry is okay. Talking about the power of a made-up mind this morning. It's not time for us to mess around. It's not time to be in multiple options and keeping our options open, but it's time to make up our minds. My uncle had an expression. I don't believe it was original with him, but he was who I heard it from. He said, you make a decision and you murder the alternatives. He was basically saying, make a choice and remove the other options. Make the decision. Have a made-up mind. If you're going to go into a battle unsure of which side you're on, if you're going to face a trial or a struggle or an offense or you're undecided, it is highly unlikely that you will not be victorious. You need to have your mind made up before you go into battle. 
You need to have your mind made up before the trial starts, before you deal with difficult situations, before somebody presses your buttons the wrong way. You need to have a made-up mind. Because if you've got a made-up mind, whatever comes your way, you'll be able to stand like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, where he said, For I am persuaded. That's King James English, for I've got my mind made up that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He said, I've made up my mind that there is nothing that can separate me from Jesus. He wasn't declaring his own power. He was declaring the power of Jesus that he was trusting in. Amen. Paul had every excuse imaginable to quit. Every excuse. Persecution. False brethren. False prophets. Churches that he poured his heart and soul into completely disrespected and disregarded him. And every excuse, the reason that you can come up with this morning, Paul probably had that on his list as well. But Paul said, I'm going to make it. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up now. He didn't make that decision in the middle of a shipwreck. He made that decision before he got on the boat. You don't wait till you're in the middle of the storm to make up your mind. You make up your mind today so that when the storm comes, the decision is done. You leave the door open in the middle of a storm, you'll take that escape hatch every time. Having a made-up mind is not going to keep you from hard times. Oh, how I wish it did. It will not excuse you from struggles. It will not even give you a pass from having days where you want to quit. You see, that's the difference between feeling like quitting and actually doing it. There isn't a child of God that's ever breathed that hasn't felt like giving up. I don't believe there's ever been anybody walked with Jesus that didn't have days where they questioned where they wondered, where they thought, Lord, it's too much, it's too hard, it's too far, it's too many times, it's too whatever. We've all had days where we felt like that. But feeling like that and doing that are two very, very different things. All of us have had those feelings. There are people in this house this morning that have served God for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and the reason they're here is because they are persuaded. Not because they're super Christians. Not because God treats them different from everybody else, but at some point, probably at quite a few points along the way, they've made up their mind. They've said, I'm not going back. I'm not turning left. I'm not turning right. I've made up my mind. I am persuaded. Jesus had crowds that thronged him when he was healing the sick and turning fish sandwiches into food for a multitude. But when he began to change the way he spoke, talk about suffering and cost and discomfort, the crowds just seemed to magically thin to a point that at one day he turned to his disciples and he said to them, will you also leave me? And you know, I, I think he was God manifest in the flesh. He knew what was going on in their hearts and minds. They're probably thinking, man, this is getting serious. This is getting tough. He's, you know, he, he's not talking about blessings and food and comfort and healing. He, he's talking about sacrifice 
and suffering and taking up a cross. And they're probably thinking in their minds, we know they said, they said, Lord, where else can we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. You could ask that question, where else is there that's worth going? What other options are presented to us that are better than what Jesus offers us? What choices do we have that can even compare to the promises of the Lord? We have to have a made-up mind this morning. Amen. The Lord, the Lord Himself, because you can understand Jesus was fully God and fully man. And in His humanity, He felt the struggle. In His humanity, He was repulsed by the suffering that was ahead of Him. But He made up His mind. And I'm glad this morning that He did. I'm glad that He didn't wait. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 7, speaking prophetically about the Lord, it says, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I shall not be confounded, therefore have I set my face like flint and i know that i shall not be ashamed if you don't know what flint is it's a very hard rock they use it to start fires because when you bang it on other rocks you get sparks it was a prophecy about the lord he said he set his face like flint we get to luke chapter 9 and verse 51 and it says and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's not in my notes, but James wrote to us and he said that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. He said, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He doesn't even look like he's going to change. He doesn't even give the impression that he's wavering or that he's considering an opportunity. He's set. And we need to be set as well. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That is so backwards to the way that we think. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect or complete work, that you might be perfect or complete and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally or generously, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Why? Because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James says, brethren, when you go through trials and temptations and struggles, he says, look beyond the immediate circumstance. Don't be obsessed with what's happening right now in the present, but recognize that God has a purpose in it for your perfection. Be able to take your mind off your pain and say, God, I'm going to rejoice that you're trying to do something in me. It's not being some kind of masochist or sadist, but it's about recognizing that if he's allowed it, he has a purpose in it. And you have to make up your mind that you're going to go through it. And The Bible tells us that if we lack wisdom, You need to understand when it says that in that passage, it's not talking about intelligence. It's not talking about being able to speak about highly complicated things or give counsel that blows people's minds. It's talking about knowing what is the right mindset, knowing what is the right attitude, knowing what is the right way to think when I'm going through that trial. He's saying, God, help me to keep my mind straight. Help me to keep my heart in line. I know it's tough. I know I'm going through a hard time. But God, I need you to help me keep my head on straight. He doesn't say that God doesn't want to. He says he won't upbraid you. 
It's an old English word. It's talking about chastening or he's not going to be upset at you when you ask him. He says, if you ask him for that help, he gives liberally. He's generous. He pours it out. He knows you're thinking, God, this is hard. I'm trying to work out what I've done wrong. I'm trying to work out what I should have said better. I'm trying to work out why that person's upset or why I'm having a hard time or why when I come to the house of God, it feels like there's nobody here. I put my hand up. I can't feel the Holy Ghost, the Word of God. It seems dead. But God, give me wisdom. Help me to keep my mind made up. Why? Because if you waver, if you stagger in indecision, will I, won't I? Will I? Won't I? You're unstable in all your ways. Why does it say we're unstable in all our ways when we waver? Because if you don't have a made-up mind to live for Jesus, that indecision is going to affect every single part of your life. Just like when you do make up your mind to serve God, that affects every part of your life. But when you've still got a foot in each camp, when you're still sitting on the fence, that lack of concrete and firm decision impacts everything that you do. So you become unstable in all your ways. Having a made-up mind is going to cost you sometimes. Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 24. If you know the story of Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house, God used that situation to miraculously preserve him. And you can read that in the book of Exodus. But in Hebrews 11, 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, he reached a point of maturity. It says that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He said, that's not going to be my identity. Verse 25, it says, Choosing, making up his mind, rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming or valuing the reproach, the cost you might have to pay for Christ, valuing that as greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. For he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Moses was saying, I may have to make a decision that in the short term is going to cost me. It's going to hurt. It's going to be uncomfortable. You see, he was living like a prince. He was in the, the throne, the royal family, of the superpower of that day. He didn't suffer. He didn't lack for anything. He may have had a little bell next to his bed that he could ring day or night and somebody could bring him a hamburger or whatever they ate back then. But he looked at all of that and he looked at the people of God and he said, I'm not going to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm going to choose. I'm going to look at the reward. It's a little further down the track. See, the issue with humanity is we want instant gratification. We want it now. But when you think about now versus eternity, that's insane. Moses said, what's coming is more important and more valuable. You see, it's all about the way we finish. It's really not about anything else except how we finish this race. You'll struggle. You might be weak. But if you're there at the end, that's what matters. Does it? unkind as this may seem you may have the most miserable life on this earth but if you're there at the end that's what matters it doesn't matter if if god uses you to reach thousands to do signs and wonders in the holy ghost and see the miraculous take place but you give up before the end 
Those people are still blessed. But you've wasted all that time. It's about how we finish. Amen. I was looking at some photos recently. Some young people, I'm talking 20, 30-year-old photos, back from when I used to be attending youth. And I, I know where they are today. Decisions that families made. Decisions that parents made. Decisions that for whatever reason and in the natural, they were good reasons. But when I look at where those families are now and where those children are now and where those marriages are now, friend, it's, it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Nothing else matters if we don't finish well. Nothing else matters if I'm not there when he comes back. I can pass this church till I'm old and losing my mind, but if I'm not there when the Lord comes back, all of that is without value for me. We need to have a made-up mind to be committed to Jesus. He'll bring you through. We need to be committed to the family of God. We felt that anointing as we prayed for the Dimer family this morning on the family of God. Jesus will use this family to bring you through. We need to be committed to the house of God. We need to worship together, to pray together, to hear the word together, to help one another to still be there at the end. Am I? Let me make something clear, and I'm not sure why this is in my notes, but it is. Am I saying that if you join a church that you can never leave that church? It's like a life prison sentence? No, I'm not saying that. Everybody has the right to choose where they go to church, to choose who their pastor is, to choose who their church family is. After all, your soul is on the line. You have to make those choices. When people leave a church family or a congregation, they join another. It's not always a bad thing. They make the mistake of always thinking, well, it must have been something bad. But there are two questions, and if you will remember these as you go through life, they will help you. Two questions that each of us must honestly answer when we think about ever leaving a church. Why we are leaving and how we are leaving. The why and the how. If the decision, if the why is in the will of God and it's for the right reasons, God will bless that. He will. If it's not for the right reason, the unfortunate thing about the issues of the heart is that they're really portable. They can go with you wherever you go. Uh, they're not hard to pick up and, and pack and take with you on your journey. The how we leave a church should always be with respect and honor for the church family we leave behind. Even if we were unhappy there, other people's souls are in the equation. I was talking to a pastor there, a very good friend of mine, and we were, we were chatting about a family in his church that both of us know quite well. And we were just reflecting on this family of how for over four decades they have been so faithful. And this family have been through church situations. They've been through church splits. They've been through situations where the pastor went off the rails. They've been through so many situations that most would say that's a good enough reason to quit. But they made up their mind a long time ago. And it doesn't seem to matter what goes on around about them, they're faithful to the Lord. They're faithful to the family of God. They're faithful to the house of God. And they've got an amazing spirit. If you spoke to these people, and some of you know them, so I'm not going to name them, but if you had a chance to speak to them and feel the spirit they have, you wouldn't have a clue of some of the junk they've been through because they made up their mind a long time ago. I'm talking about the power of a made-up mind. 
this morning. I want to challenge you this morning that whatever comes your way, your mind is made up. Whatever you face, whatever somebody does, whoever lets you down, when you let yourself down. And if we're honest, a lot of it starts there. Make up your mind that you're going to serve the Lord with a right heart and a right spirit. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know what the Lord's going to allow me to go through. But by the grace of God, I'm going to make up my mind that I'm going to be there when it's all said and done. That's what matters more than anything else. There is no heartache. There is no trial. There is no tribulation. There is no offense. There is no horrible person I go to church with. There is no person that makes my life miserable that is worth not being there at the end. Not a single person. Not a single situation. Seen too many times what happens when people quit along the way. Hallelujah. Now, when I was preparing this message, the Lord began to speak to me. It was almost like took me down a tangent. I mean, to speak to me about drunkenness. Okay. Ephesians chapter 5 and 18 says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I've talked before about how one is a negative influence and the other one's a positive influence. But as I was praying and just thinking on this, it was as if the Lord said to me, what is the issue? What is the problem when people are drunk or they're intoxicated? So I began to write a list. People who are drunk will often do or say things they wouldn't when they're sober. Drunkenness often produces violence, offensive speech, and immorality. People wake up sore from a fight they don't remember. People wake up and someone's offended because of things they said. People wake up, they don't know where they are or who they're with. That happens when people are drunk. People who are drunk are not able to make good decisions or sound judgments. Their reasoning is impaired. They can be clumsy because they don't really register what's going on properly. And that's why driving a car while drunk is so dangerous because your alertness is impaired your reaction times are affected but what increases that danger is that while on one hand a drunk person is unable to function well to think clearly or to perform tasks they often also seemingly in opposite manner have an increased confidence in their abilities so that when somebody says hey maybe you shouldn't drive or can I get you a taxi or do you want me to take the keys? They insist that they're fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm fine. To drive. I'm not drunk. They can barely walk in a straight line, but they insist that there's nothing wrong with them. They're convinced that they're fine and actually get angry at people that try to help them. And then the Lord said to me, when my people allow such things as pride, Bitterness or unforgiveness, anger, immorality, and such like. They become intoxicated with the lust of the flesh. Demonstrate the same symptoms as drunkenness does. Think about that. People that have got those issues in their heart, they'll say things that previously they might not have said. The filter's not there anymore. Their judgment is impaired and dangerous to others when a well-meaning brother or sister tries to help them they are convinced that they are fine and in complete control of the situation 
even being aggressive toward the person that's trying to help them. You know, when I was a little boy, grew up in a spiritually divided house, my dad's not serving the Lord yet. As a little boy, I remember taking a sip from my father's beer and thinking how disgusting it tasted and how horrible it was. You know, most people that I know that drink beer, this this will all come together hopefully, think where in the world is the pastor gone this morning? Most people that I know who drink beer did not like the taste of it the first time they tried it. Some do, but most don't. But they persist in drinking it for a variety of reasons, social pressure, others are doing it. But at the end of the day, one of the reasons they persist is because if you continue to drink it, they like the way that it makes them feel. The cup of bitterness has a very unpleasant taste. But when we don't repent of it, but we continue to sip it, what happens is it starts to soothe our self-justification. And it reassures us that we have every right to feel the way that we do and that we're okay. Our judgment is impaired. Our minds are no longer made up the way they should be. And we begin to gamble with our souls. Talking about the power of a made-up mind this morning. The book of Judges, there is a story about a man named Samson. Somebody many of us learned about in Sunday school, but the book of Judges is not a particularly flattering time in Israel's history. They're up and down in the service of God and God, because of his goodness and his mercy, sends people along to deliver them and this cycle repeats. And Samson is one of these people and Samson was a miracle child. The Bible says that his mother was barren. She wasn't able to have children. An angel appeared to, to his parents, I'm just paraphrasing the story, and said they were going to have a son. And that son was to be, was to have have a Nazarite vow. Now, if you're not familiar with that, it's a vow that was taken as a, a commitment to God and in service to God, and it had things that were involved. He was not ever to cut his hair. I think it also included things like having no contact with dead bodies. They weren't allowed to drink any wine or even have any contact at all with grapes, with the fruit of the vine. And you, can, you want to study that, you can look into that at another time, or you can ask me about that later. The Bible says that as the young men grew, the Spirit of God began to move on him from time to time. And if you know the story of Samson, that anointing that the Spirit of God brought him, brought him what we would consider superhuman strength. He wasn't a giant. He wasn't a bodybuilder because the, his enemies were trying to work out where this strength came from. If he was six foot ten and built like a truck, they would know where he got his strength from. But he wasn't. He was a regular man that the anointing of God moved upon from time to time. But Samson had a problem. Samson had a problem that he liked the wrong kind of girls. Found himself being interested in girls that were not of the people of God. His parents did everything they could to discourage him and warn him, but Samson was adamant that he was in control and knew what he was doing. You know, if, if you have to try to convince people that you know what you're doing and you're in control, there's a reasonably good chance you're not. Because if you have to go the extra mile to convince somebody then there's a reason they think you're not in control. That's just a side thought. But he had problems with his relationships. He found himself in trouble several times with, with young ladies and God delivered him out of those situations. And then a woman whose name is famous came along. Her name was Delilah. 
Samson fell in love with Delilah. He just had a knack for picking the bad apples. He really did. And uh, in, as a, their relationship developed, and the Philistine leaders came to Delilah and offered her a lot of money, I think probably with a threat involved, that she needed to find out the secret of Samson's strength. Three times she tried to get him. What's, what's the secret? And three times he lied to her. Once he, he told her that if he was bound with green withs, which I think is young branches and stuff, of a sapling, and new ropes. And another time he said, if you take my hair and weave it together, I'll be weak like any other man. And each time he told her the, what, the fake secret, she did that, and then the Philistines would come in, and she'd say, hey, Samson, the Philistines, and he'd get up, and he'd give them a hiding and send them all packing. There's no dumber animal in the world than a male that's in love with a woman in every species. I'm sorry. When do the bucks, the deers with the big horns, when do they get caught? Mating season. They lose their care. They just wander out and bang. You would think after three times, once a coincidence, two, but no, Samson unfortunately was intoxicated with his own lust. And his judgment was impaired. And then finally, the Bible says that she wore him down. She just kept at him and wouldn't, wouldn't leave him alone. And finally, he said, I've never, my hair has never been cut. He said, if my hair is cut, my strength is gone. And the Bible says that she could tell that he had finally revealed his heart to her. And so she caused him to fall asleep with his head in her lap, called for man to come in. They shaved his head. And the situation replayed again. The enemy came in. Delilah said, Samson, the Philistines are here to get you. And the scripture says that Samson got up and he said, I will shake myself just like I have every other time. I'll just go out, I'll give these guys a hide and send them on their way. But tragically, in King James English, it says that he wist not, or he did not realize that the Lord was departed from him. And the enemy came in, they took him with very little resistance because his strength was gone. They put out his eyes and made him grind grain like an animal. You see, his vow before God included not drinking any wine, or having anything to do with the fruit of the vine. But if you read that passage of Scripture, you'll see Delilah lived in a place of choice vineyards. The law of Moses said you don't marry outside the people of God. And yet here he was with his head in a Philistine's lap. This is why you need to have a made-up mind. The devil wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy you. And you need to do everything you can not to give him that opportunity. Samson, you, you know, we're, we're, too many times we're like Samson. We get away with it. We think, oh, that's okay. You know, Philistines came in. I took care of them. Whew, I'm okay. And there is this false sense of security that we are fine. And the whole time the devil is lining us up for the sucker punch. Three times he got away. And then finally he compromised his conviction with the Lord. You know... In July, we spent four or five weeks doing Bible studies with young people, which I really enjoyed. Loved having question and answer with the youth. 
But whenever you get asked to teach young people anything, there's one subject that comes up in every generation, in every church, in every culture. Any words of wisdom want to tell me what that is? Relationships. All young people want to know what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do. They want you to tell them how you and your wife got married. They, they want to know how it's all supposed to work in God's sight. And you do your best to, I do my best to terrify them as a general rule so they don't do anything silly. But one of the things I'll always say to young people is don't find yourself alone with a member of the opposite sex because it can lead to a problem. It can lead to a problem. Now, does that mean that if you do, you automatically have a problem? No, of course it doesn't mean that. But there's an old adage that says prevention is better than cure. And you teach that and you, the, people, the young ones that listen to that generally will stay out of trouble. Some say, well, that's just the pastor's rules or, or that's, you know, we don't, that's old-fashioned. And, you know, when I hear those comments, and I hear them, it makes me angry. Not because they don't do what the pastor says, but because they're gambling with their souls. And when you have kids and they begin to walk and some of you got lots of little ones, you want to take those kids to the park, you get to the road. What do you do with your children when they're old enough to walk? You teach them how to cross the street. You don't just say, hey, walk across the road. Do you? No, you say when you come to the road and you teach them, you look both ways, you check if it's safe, and you go. Do you do that because if you don't, there's a guarantee they'll get hit by a car? No, you don't. You do that because you want to prevent that situation. You may live in a quiet neighborhood where there's no traffic, but if you're a wise parent, you're still going to teach your kids, look both ways before you cross the street. Oh, but even if we don't, if we don't bother with that, they won't necessarily get hit by a car. No, that's right. They won't necessarily. But how many lives are worth it? How many kids' lives? What's, what's an acceptable number? to stop teaching those principles. How many lives is, oh, that's an acceptable number of children in accidents, so we won't worry to teach that anymore. How many of your kids would you consider an acceptable number? None. It's exactly the same with the things we teach in the house of God. It doesn't mean that if you don't do those things that you're guaranteed to have a failure, but how many souls being destroyed is an acceptable number? How many lives going off track and falling into sin is acceptable? None. We need to have a made-up mind. Jesus is coming back. You know, I was thinking the other day, I need to preach about the rapture more. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. You don't know when? I don't know when, but the Bible says He's coming back. He's coming back, and that's got to be why you live the way that you live. I hope you love your church. I hope you love your brothers and sisters. I even hope you love your pastor, but that's not the reason you're here. You're here because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, I want to be looking for him. When the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ shall rise first. It'd be too late to make up your mind. A twinkling of an eye is that long, and you need to have made up your mind already. Because Jesus is coming back. When you're in that position or that situation where you're going to make a decision, will I go, will I separate myself? Will, will I flirt with danger? You need to remember Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. The devil's looking for an opportunity to steal, to kill, and to destroy. 
And we need to not be ignorant of his devices is what the Bible says. Don't be naive. Don't think that you're smart enough or strong enough. I don't care how smart you are. None of you are smarter than the devil. He's been deceiving humanity since Adam was put in the garden. He's got a whole lot more experience than you have. He's been doing it a long, long time. And he wants you to believe that you're okay, that you've got this, that you're mature enough, that, you know, you recognize those boundaries and those principles for other people, but you're, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. The power of a made-up mind. You know, Samson's life finished in some kind of a victory. In, in his death, he, he killed more Philistines than he ever had before, but I, I still find that hard to celebrate than a man that was called of God took the chances that he did. I want to read one more passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm about done. Hebrews 10 and 35 says, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Don't give up now. Make up your mind, which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, help us, Jesus, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, but Lord, it seems so long, Think about eternity. Think about eternity and then think about how long it is you've waited. Measure the two against each other. For yet a little while and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, he hasn't got a made up mind. My soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them. Everybody say we're not of them. We're not of them that draw back under perdition, but we are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. The power of a made-up mind. You don't have to have incredible willpower. You've all got incredible willpower. It's just what your will wants that's the issue. (laughs) There's no problem with our willpower. It's trying to get our will to want the right things. That's the problem. You know, people say, you know, I can't lose weight. I have no willpower. You got willpower. You just want the pizza more than the lettuce. That's just how it is. And somebody said, amen. It's not about our power. If you remember when we talked about Revelation a couple of weeks ago, the church at Philadelphia only had a little strength. Kept his name with a little strength. And God said, I'll put a door in front of you. I'll open it. Nobody can shut it. Nobody can shut that door. As long as I'm looking to him, there's a door open to us. There's an opportunity to come in and out and fellowship with him. And one day that door in heaven is going to open. It talks about in Revelation chapter 4. And he's going to say, come up hither. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want you to stand with me if you would this morning. I'm going to ask Brother Fiston if he would come and help me out. The book of Exodus. I'll finish with this. Moses is on the mountain, communing with God, getting the law, getting all the instructions. People down at the ground level are wondering if Moses is dead. Is he actually coming back? He's been gone a long time. And they begin to fuss among themselves. And Aaron Aaron didn't have much of a made-up mind. He fashioned them an idol, just like we read about in 1 Kings 
chapter 18, golden calf. And people begin to worship that thing. And as is so often the way with idolatry, there was drunkenness and immorality and all sorts of horrible things going on. And as Moses and Joshua come down the mountain, they hear the sound of it. And it's repulsive, it's wrong, it's wicked, and it's disgusting in God's sight. And Moses smashes the tablets of the law and he gets down there and, and he stands before the... And they all begin to do what people do. Oh, they blame each other. We didn't know if you were coming back. Aaron's like, it was the people. The, you know, everybody's, nobody's taken ownership. And then Moses stands there and he says, who is on the Lord's side? And it says that the Levites come and stood with him. And he said, every one of you take your sword. Go out amongst the people and slay those that are involved in this wicked idolatry. He said, doesn't matter if it's your brother, family member, or relative. He said, who's on the Lord's side? Hallelujah. God wants to challenge us this morning to have a made-up mind. I don't know what you're in. I don't know what's ahead of you. I don't know what works of the flesh you're intoxicated with right now. But God wants us to sober up this morning and make up our mind. Let's lift our hands and begin to worship Him. God, I pray. Lord, feel the heaviness in your spirit this morning, Lord God. It's not time to waver. It's not time to be stuck in the middle. It's not time to be convinced that we're okay. Well, we sip the cup of bitterness and justify our carnality. And, oh, God, that we would have a made-up mind this morning. God, that we would look to you. Say, God, if you will help me, I'm going to trust you. When I'm struggling, I'm going to ask you for wisdom. When I'm going through a trial, I'm going to recognize that there's a benefit that's coming on the other side, that you have a purpose in the process. God, I'm going to have a made-up mind. And Lord, when it's hard, Lord, when it's not easy, we're going to say, God, where else can we go? Who else is there, God, that can compare to you? Lord, in the name of Jesus.